Welcome to Achieve Wealth through value-add real estate investing. This is the show where the guru hype is banned and you get direct insights from commercial real estate operators. If you're a passive investor, this show can help you better understand investment opportunities. And if you're an active investor, the lessons from each episode can help you to become more effective in your own deals. Now, here's your host, investor and author, James Kandasamy. Hi, audience and listeners. This is James Kandasamy from a Chief Wealth Podcast. Today, I have Glenn Gonzalez, who have been uh, a big operator out of Austin, Texas. And uh, Glenn has deals uh, which he have done in uh, Dallas area, Corpus Christi, Killeen, and south of Houston, uh, a city called Lake Jackson. And uh, he is currently owning about 3,000 units. At some point, uh, past few years, he owned like more than 4,500 uh, units. And he also have a, a strong uh, property management company uh, previously, which used to manage up to 6,500 units. So he brings a, a really good value to this podcast. Uh, hey, Glenn, how are you doing? Hey, James, doing great. Uh, thanks for having me on. This is exciting. Yeah, yeah. Did I miss out of any of uh, you know the story behind you uh, that you want to clarify? Oh. Maybe I think uh, where I came from, you know, because yeah. that's uh, people are always interested. You know, we talk about all the success that we have, but I actually started as a maintenance man. Wow. So I was uh, kind of at the bottom of the barrel, you know, uh, picking up trash and I was like a porter, right? Really. And uh, then I was eventually painting apartments and fixing stoves and stuff. So when my, my involvement in the, uh, in the apartment industry started about 30 years ago, Wow. So I actually came through maintenance man, leasing agent, you know, property manager, then a regional manager, uh, you know, director of operations. And, you know, so all the way through pretty much all the different ranks of, you know, property management until about six years ago when I started buying my own as the owner. Uh, and that really changes the, the perspective on apartments. You know, you've got an operator perspective and, and an owner perspective. So. Maybe I yeah. could share some of that today while we're on the, on the call. Sure, sure. That'll be really, really interesting. I mean, some of the big guys that I know in this apartment, such as like Ken McElroy, right? I mean, he started as a property manager, right? And yeah. uh, I interviewed uh, Eddie Lorin, who have done like more like 1 billion in transaction as, as an operator. He, I mean, one of the big first advice that he told our listeners uh, when I interviewed him uh, like a few podcasts back uh, was like, you know, start from the ground, uh, start to learn from the ground itself, or be a property manager or be a, a maintenance man or potter and then learn, learn the business because you can learn so many things. So it looks like you have that, you know, coming from the ground uh, experience, uh, you know, uh, and, you know, now you have, you know, more than 3000 units and uh, you used to have like 4,500 units, right? So, which is, which is awesome, right? So, so looking from the ground itself, right, up to the asset management, like when you are a maintenance man or your potter, you know, what do you think about the owners? Oh my gosh. I used to get so nervous when the owners would show up to one of my apartment complexes, you know, because I was, um, you know, my boss would call me and say, hey, the owners are coming. So I want to make sure this place looks perfect and everything is in order. And, uh, and then they would tell me things like, you know, if they ask you a bunch of questions, you know, they would say, let me do the talking. So I was basically supposed to keep my mouth shut. And that just kind of made me nervous, you know, because uh, all the hype and, and stuff. So I don't know, you kind of think the owners are almost not like 
real people to some degree, but they are. They're just like you and me, right? They're just Correct. common folks. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, sometimes the especially the maintenance crew, right? I mean, usually when owners comes in to a property, like even when we go and visit our property, you know, I mean, any most of the owners they we, we talk to the office staff, right? Because we think yeah, we control the whole thing, but. But a backbone of uh, renewal in the property uh, is the maintenance, right? Because people are happy when work orders are being taken care and people really like that, right? So we really make it a point to really take care of our maintenance people. And, and that's another advice for all the listeners out there. If you own a property, uh, don't just look at the property managers or the leasing agents or the assistant managers, right? Go and say hi to your maintenance people because they are really, really important. Uh, don't you think oh, so? Absolutely. Yeah. I would uh, add a little bit to that. You know, yeah. when I go uh, visit a property, I always speak with the property or the, uh, or the maintenance guys always, because they will tell you everything that's going on on that property. Even the stuff the manager might not know. I mean, they know how often they're, you know, recharging air conditioners or how often they're fixing things. I mean, they know the back, the, the work orders, like the back of their hand, but beyond that, they even know the tenants. I mean, they know which ones have pets and which ones don't have pets because <laughs> they're in there doing work orders. They know everything, you know, and um, and I would say that they're often the ones that are neglected. Right. Because I would like like you mentioned earlier, when we go and do a site visit, a lot of times we'll sit down with the property manager and we'll talk about the leasing and uh, the marketing and the delinquency and some of those common things. But rarely do we talk to the maintenance guy about, hey is there anybody out here that's like a bad apple that's like creating a lot of havoc and they will tell you who's dumping the trash out there. They'll tell you who's having parties late at night and who's got like five dogs in their apartment. You know, I mean, they know everything. So yeah, my advice is, you know, if you need to know what's really going on behind the scenes, get to know your maintenance guys. Yeah. I think it's also important during the due diligence process, right? Because sometimes we are with the brokers and we have the managers and, you can see that they like to hide the uh, people who know the real stuff, which is the maintenance guys, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. try to get to them to ask more questions. Do you have any tips and tricks to, uh, you know, to get to maintenance yeah. guys uh, while doing due diligence so that, you know, we can get the truth from them? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think part of it is just making them feel appreciated and that their opinion matters. I'll tell you this, just like I was sharing my experience, uh, I used to get really nervous when the owners would come around. Because they, to me, when I was younger, they were very intimidating. Mm-hmm. So if one of those guys came up and wanted to talk to me, I'd be like, uh, you're talking to me? You know, so find a way to make them comfortable. Um, you know, really, at the end of the day, just make them feel appreciated for all their hard work and acknowledge that they are such a big part of the team. And when they feel appreciated and they feel acknowledged, trust me, they'll share with you a lot of important information. Um, they may offer information that nobody else knows. They may say things like, Hey, by the way, I would go check the roofs on building three, right? Cause, uh, we've had, you know, several roof leaks on that one building in the last four months. They know, they know everything because they're doing all the sheetrock repairs on the inside. Right. And so they even know where it's leaking. It could be around the chimney or something. And you're like, Oh, good idea. Thanks. I'll go check that. Yeah. So yeah, due diligence, maintenance guys, you're absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that uh, we do uh, just to share with the listeners is, uh, you know, we also ask the maintenance guys to rank the property managers. So it's not only like property managers control the whole thing. I think six months, once or once a year, 
yeah. we do this uh, 360 feedback on the property managers from the maintenance, right? Because, you know, sometimes you need to give them the voice, right? And, yeah. and I think, um, you know, we have to just give them an official channel for them to voice what yeah. they want to share in terms of how the property managers are doing, how yeah, the yeah. office people are doing too. So, you know, and I've, and I've shared this with uh, some of my friends in the industry that you'll never, ever have a successful manager without a successful maintenance guy absolutely, and vice versa. If, if one of them are really good at their job and the other one is not, you will not be maximizing the value of that apartment complex. I mean, it's just like, a, it's almost like a marriage, you know, the manager and the maintenance supervisor, they're married at the hip. They've got to be on the same page. And mm-hmm. if they're not, if they're complaining about each other, um, you know, that's an opportunity to stop and pause about why they're not on the same page. Um, so just FYI, you know, and, and if one of the maintenance guys, like you said, gives a, a rating to the manager of a very low number, like oh, that manager is a two at the best, uh-huh. you know, um, you might want to go talk to the manager and like, how do you rate your, your maintenance guy? <laughs> uh, he's like a negative two at best, you know, and then all of a sudden it's like, what's going on? And, yeah. you know, and, and who knows what the problem is, but boy, you could then read the financials and the financials will tell you the story too, right? Because if you're way out of out of budget you know say the maintenance guy's not very good at painting so he wants to contract out every paint and mm-hmm. your turn cost could be very very expensive um there's a lot of you know things that you can learn from from yeah. each other yeah that's wise on your part absolutely absolutely so how did you climb that ladder right from maintenance to from potter to maintenance to you know to become owner now it's a funny story, James. <laughs> it's a really <laughs> funny story. Uh, to be honest with you, you know, I'm out there trying to do work orders and I started my industry in Salt Lake City and it's really cold outside. So when you're picking up trash, you know, I mean, you're freezing cold, um, you know, especially when you have to, you know, you're going from apartment to apartment, you're carrying all this stuff. Anyway, um, so I went to, I told my boss, you know, I, I don't want to be a maintenance guy forever. I want to, I want to be a manager because they get to sit in the office and talk on the phone. And my, you know, that was my motivation. I was young. I just don't want to be out in the cold. So they're like, well, we don't have any openings for, you know, for maintenance guys to be managers. I'm like, well, just, you know, that, that's, that's my next step. So they had a 60 unit apartment complex that needed, excuse me, a part-time manager and a part-time maintenance guy. So I said, I'll take it. So I was, I was part-time on each one of those. So I got to learn the, the manager skill and, you know, talk on the phone. And then I was, I had to do the work orders and the make readies. And I learned this valuable lesson. Uh, somebody moved in and they had to fill out one of those uh, make ready, um, not a make ready, a move in, a move in a checklist to make sure that the unit's in, in proper condition when people move in. Hmm. And they turned it into the manager after they signed the lease. And it's got all these things that don't work. A stove doesn't work right. Toilets, you know, running and the dishwasher, you know, uh, won't cycle or whatever. So that like, I don't know who fixed this apartment, but you need to get them back. So I'd go back later in the day and I'd, you know, take my tools and change my clothes. And they're like, Hey, what are you doing here? I'm like, well, I'm the maintenance guy. And, and they're like, Oh, so you're the one that got this apartment ready. And I'm like, yeah, that was me. <laughs> and I realized then, uh, I, I was not a very good maintenance guy, <laughs> um, but that was my transition, but I really was able to turn that apartment community around mm-hmm. and it was struggling with occupancy and revenue. And it got to the point where it was doing very, very well because um, I kind of was able to see it from both sides. You know, I, I knew how much we could rent them for, but I also knew we had to get them ready first. And, 
and I and I worked my little magic as a as a newbie to the industry. I was very successful. Well, my boss recognized the success, mm-hmm. and they had another. I think it was a larger. I don't remember exactly 200 or 300 units that was struggling with some of the same stuff. And, and they asked if I would go there and give them my opinion. So I went uh, kind of as a manager uh, over to this other community and found that the leasing agent and the manager were really good friends. Uh, but that leasing agent wasn't very effective at all. And the manager was too good of friends to fire her friend. So I, I said, well, let's do one of those secret shops and do an evaluation and, kind of did all that. And I showed the manager, look, you know, you're not a very good manager because you're not able to make a business decision because you got to make changes on the leasing and that leasing agent's affecting you as a leader. So she kind of said, she realized at that time that if, if she wasn't able to make a, an improvement or a change, it was going to stifle her own career as well. So she made that change and all of a sudden the leasing got better and the collections got better and People were, you know, giving better reviews and, and my boss recognized that I had this knack for identifying problems. Well, then I, then I got to oversee multiple apartment complexes and I became what's known as an area manager. So I had two or three that I could oversee. So my career just started kind of, kind of progressing a little bit. I graduated college and I was supposed to be a hospital administrator Mm -hmm. and I did an internship at a hospital Mm -hmm. and did not want to do that the rest of my life. So here I was at a crossroads, maintenance man to manager slash hospital administrator. Now what? You know, so I said, I'm just going to make property management my career. And then, then I just started getting more educated uh, with a real estate license. And then I eventually got my CPM designation and was involved with, you know, the apartment association and stuff. So there you go. That's kind of how I moved up the ladder a little bit. So at what point did you buy your first property? I mean, I mean, syndicated or, you know, using some other. Sure. That's a great question. So in the time frame from that point, um, it was probably another, gosh, 10 or 15 years later. Wow. You know, okay. um, I was now working for a big REIT, a real estate investment trust hmm. in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, equity residential. Um, they're they're a very big um, uh, property owner manager REIT, and I was getting great experience there. While I had a mentor uh, that was you know serving on the board of directors for the apartment association, his name is John Gibson, also from Washington. And I went to John. And I said, John, I want to buy an apartment complex someday, and I showed him this little sixty unit deal that I was analyzing. And uh, and and at this time, I was still a, a regional manager. I still got a W-2 paycheck. Well, I went to John and I said, you know, tell me what you think. And he said, you know, you'll probably do okay. He said, but I have this little 44-unit apartment complex I'll sell you um, and I'll make it much easier to buy. I said, how so? He's like, you just need to come up with $150,000 down payment mm-hmm. and I'll carry a note back for the rest. And I said, great. Um, let me go look at it. So I went and looked at it and this guy wasn't managing it very well. And I knew how to manage pretty well. So I'm like, this is a great, we can make money on this. So I went to two of my friends and I said, do you guys want to go in on this apartment complex with me? They said, what do we need? I said, $150,000. And they said, oh, you know, what are the splits? I said, a third, a third, a third. Mm-hmm. And they said, okay. I said, but you each have to put up $75,000. And they're like, well, well, if we're a third, a third, a third, 
shouldn't we split that 150,000, a third, a third, a third? I'm like, but I, I didn't have any money. Right. So <laughs> I'm like, I found the deal. We're going to make money and you guys put up the equity. You guys will get your money back before me. But once we start making money, we'll split it a third, a third, a third. And those two friends said, all right, sounds good. We did it. We bought that apartment complex. He carried a note back and uh, we owned it for like a year and a half. Um, and we sold it for about a million dollars more than we paid for it in eight months. Wow, so, that's awesome. so that third, a third, a third, those, those folks were pretty happy. So the mistake I made is when I sold it, I carried back a note on part of our profits hmm. and the guy that borrowed or bought it from us defaulted on that note. So I oh. actually, even though we made a lot of money on paper, I also, I lost half of it, uh, do a bad note. So word of the wise, if, if you're going to be a lender, <laughs> you know, to a buyer, uh, you know, do your homework. Oh. I didn't. Oh, so you become the, you, you sell a finance to someone else, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Oh, it. It. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We still pocketed a half a million dollars. So, I okay. mean, we did got okay, it, got it, got but, it. um, we carried a note back. So got it, got it, got it. That was my very first deal. It was 44 units and it was while I was still working as an employee. That's you know? very interesting because you really came from the ground up and, you made that transition to an owner, you know, and you found the deal and you were able to convince your friends to finance it. So at what point did you, did you had the realization that, hey, I'm a regional now, I want to buy. And what, why did you want that thought process came in? Why did you want to be an owner? Well, a couple of reasons. Um, one, I knew that these owners that came seemed like they had a lot of money. In my mind, it seemed like they were like rich people. Right? They drove fancy cars and stuff. Mm-hmm. And from my perspective, um, they were they were wealthy. Um, but the other one is I realized that when I got really good at property management and I increased the value of that apartment community, that owner would eventually sell that property, and he would take his money and run, and I would get a thank you. Mm-hmm. He would get a and he would get a lot of money. <laughs> and and they always said, you know, Glenn, we really appreciate your property management efforts. You've done very well for us, and thank you very much. So I got a lot of thank yous, not a lot of dollars. And, you know, that was a motivation for me. It's like someday I wish I can create that value for myself. Um, my wife always encouraged me. She's like, you know, you're really good at making other people a lot of money. Someday you've got to do that for yourself. And so that was a motivation, too, is, is you know, you get – really good at property management, uh, you should maybe be the owner. So, yes. But I had money, you know, I didn't have any money, so. No, but uh, you have that knowledge, right, on how to increase the NOI, right? So, which is, which is you know, the most important, I would say, right, compared yes. to having a lot of money and buying assets. If you do not know how to increase NOI from the ground up, you know, you may be, you know, just half blindfolded, right? So, yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, what made me successful later in life is that experience and the knowledge that I had from the ground up gave me great insight um, in helping me find good deals that I could fix if they're broken. Um, And then I later in my career, about six years ago, right, um, started buying my own. And I remember having to raise, you know, over a million dollars on my first deal. Mm-hmm. And when, when people realize that you have experience, you know what you're talking about and you came from the ground up, they're more likely to let you, know, invest with you than they would be with somebody that has no experience and thinks, you know, 
that would just go syndicate a deal with no experience. So, you know, the experience really paid off in the end for me, you know, um, yeah, I'm sure it's paying off right now itself. So, so I want to go into some of the secrets in property management because you are the insider. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have become an outsider now, right? So, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's so, right. Because I mean, um, I mean, for me, I, I mean, my wife, uh, she does a lot of property management, and just because mm-hmm. of the knowledge that we have in asking questions to our employees, you know, all the all our employees doesn't really tell us stories, right? They don't tell us like it right. Takes, five days to make ready or two, three weeks to make ready and all that kind of thing. I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, property management is a people business, right? There's a lot of detail, what you call a detail things happens inside the property management itself. And if you do not know the detail, then people just can take you for yeah. a ride. <laughs> let's go. Into, very true. Yeah. Let's go into the details, right? So how would you know a leasing agent is not a good leasing agent? So great question, uh, James. There's there's indicators um, that are quite obvious, but then there's some that you kind of have to peel the onion back a little bit to uh, to figure out. You know, the first indicator is if your occupancy is struggling, where all your all your competitors are say in the in the 90s, and your property is like in the 80s, and you have enough product that's already made ready. And it's priced correctly, but gosh, people are just not leasing. So that could be an indicator. Uh, you know, there's remedies to that. You can hire a secret shopper that will come and pretend to be a, you know, a renter and they will give that leasing agent an evaluation. Um, and, and what does this secret shopper do? Uh, they pretend like they're an average person coming to rent a, an apartment. You know, they give uh, a name, they go on a tour and um, they kind of evaluate whether or not the leasing agent was able to connect with the with them as a renter. If they took them on a tour of the apartment, mostly if they followed up to say, you know, are you still interested in, in renting? You know, some leasing agents never follow up. Some of the agents aren't able to connect with people, uh, like emotionally connect with people because, you know, renting an apartment home is, you know, it's an emotional decision. There's apartments everywhere. So the only thing that makes you know, your apartment may be different than your competitor's apartment, maybe that leasing agent. Mm. So, you know, if the indicators are there, um, you know, there are remedies, but sometimes you just got to peel the onion back. And what I mean by that is you just need to listen to how they talk to people. You need to get feedback from the residents, you know, as an owner, you can always send out a little flyer or a little questionnaire. You know, we get a, what's called the move-in report where it talks about who moved in in the last 30 days. Mm -hmm. I look at those move-in reports to see if they've hit their, you know, the targets on the rents and stuff, but you can send a little questionnaire or you can even call them on the phone as the owner and say, tell me about your experience um, from the time you moved in till now, you know, and, um, and that'll give you a lot of insight. The other thing is the closing ratio. You know, there are, there are, our averages in our industry about if 10 people apply, what percent actually come back and sign a lease and move in, you know, and, and that percentage could be anywhere from 30 to 40% of the people come back. Now, granted, some of those get denied because of credit and criminal activity or evictions. And we expect that. But if some leasing agent has a closing ratio of 10% or 15%, you'll want to stop and say, there's a problem here because that's below the industry average. 
Um, and where do you find those industry averages? Well, you got to talk to people in the industry. Uh, they're not widely publicized on closing ratios, but that information is readily available. You can get it through the apartment association. You can get it through people who own and operate apartments. Um, and you just ask, network with people. Yeah, and and what do you do if the if the leasing agent gives reason saying that our apartment is priced too high? Well, there's you trust but verify. <laughs> okay. you know, she could be right. You know, I mean, if they have a close, you know, low closing ratio, and you as the owner said, "Hey, we renovated this unit, and I know we can get you know a thousand dollars for these two bedroom units," and all your competitors and, and your leasing agent saying, "Yeah, but." All my competitors are at 950 to 900 and you want a thousand. You know, if you argue with the leasing agent and say, but I spent so much money and I need to get a thousand out of this deal, you know, she's going to get frustrated and so are you. But if I were you, I'd go verify that. If the leasing agent is saying all your competitors are renting their two bedrooms at 950 and she's right, you as the owner better eat some humble pie and take her word for it. And, and when you get the facts verified, you better adjust your price because, you know, you may lose a good leasing agent because you're a bad owner. Correct. You know, so correct. Yeah. yeah. So go the other yeah. direction. it's important that because sometimes, uh, you know, as owners, we might have a certain performer on rents and that may not be true, right? Because you are doing it pre-closing, you know, you only when the rubber, you know, meets the road, then you really know whether whatever you projected in your performer is being able to be, you know, captured. Yeah the ground or all right and it's very yeah. skilled to identify skill whether you did the correct one or not that's correct that's correct i had um a boss of mine one time um he was the ceo of a company and he said this to me one time he said you know if it comes down to your opinion versus my opinion my opinion wins because i'm the owner right <laughs> okay. he says but if it comes down to my opinion versus your facts and your facts are right doesn't really matter what my opinion is. The facts always tell the truth. That's why we do market surveys. That's why we figure out where our competitor's occupancy is. You know, and, and if you're a good owner, you'll realize that, that sometimes um, the information is right in front of your face talking to you and you're just not willing to listen. Correct, correct. There's a lot of data that we can use to really see, you know, uh, whether yeah. we have priced it correctly or not, right? So such as yep. how many people applying, you know, how many people, how many vacancy you had for that certain configuration and all that, right? Yeah, so, yeah. And uh, how do you select a good property manager? Oh, that's a tough one. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's a really tough, tough. one. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh, you know, I have in my in my career. Uh, when I was an asset manager uh, for a Pacific property company, you know, I think we had like 8,000 units and we had hired, you know, two or three different property management companies uh, that did fee management for us as an owner. And I was an asset mm -hmm. manager, but um, some of those were some big name brand management companies that had all the bells and whistles. But you know what it came down to James is it came down to two individuals. How well did that regional manager and how get along with that property manager and how often is that regional given support? Um, if they are pretty well connected and they're good communicators, uh, chances are, you know, all the other things will fall into place. The bills get paid on time. And, you know, if, if the manager needs uh, some overrides or permissions from the regional uh, and they're, and they're on the same page and readily available, that property will flow better. 
right? Uh, it, sometimes I've seen that a regional manager may have 9, 10, 11, or even 12 assets in their portfolio. How often can an effective regional go visit 12 assets in a week or a month or two months? Not very often, right? right. They're going to be spread so thin. The, the trick is, and I know a lot of fee management companies uh, are moving away from this, but their profitability increases because they get a, they get a management fee increases when they have one fixed cost of a regional manager spread out over many uh, assets. So from the property managers company's perspective, they may give that regional a big portfolio to cover their salary. Um, you as the owner want that portfolio to be small because you want their undivided attention. You know, right. so that's a good question you can ask a management company uh, is how many uh, assets are in that regional manager's portfolio and how often that manager has worked with your property manager on site. Those are two key uh, elements. And of course, the other big one is the is the back office. How often are they, you know, producing your you know financial packages, and are they reconciling every month? And do they count catch the bounce checks fast enough? You know, how, you know, the back office people don't really jump into as an owner. You know, they just you know look at what's presented to them on the on the front end. So. There's lots of good bells and whistles. So very interesting. So, what is the good ratio for regional versus property that they manage? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think uh, an effective regional manager shouldn't have more than seven or eight um, assets okay. in their portfolio. That that number can go up, you know, to nine um, or ten if all of those properties are maybe you know smaller or they've got one manager that oversees two or three, you know, that, you know, that, that helps, or they're all stabilized, right? They're all stabilized assets and they're all doing, doing very well. A regional that could then, you know, handle more. But if the regional manager has a new lease up, you know, uh, or a repositioning or undergoing a renovation, or you're trying to change the demographic a little bit, uh, those are very, very time consuming. And if that's the case, you don't want them to have more than five in their portfolio. So there, there's a big range there. There's a big and range, a I think, are, right. So yeah, variables are, you know, stabilized in the size and then uh, the complexity of, of the assets that are in the portfolio. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a very interesting feedback on the regional because you know and I know is you know, property management is a business of issues, every daily issues, right? Which a lot of asset managers don't want to touch, right? They say, yeah. thankless job, we don't want to touch it and all that. But but how important do you think property management in terms of the efficiency or the NOI optimization of a multifamily? You know, um, again, it goes down to that regional manager and the property manager. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I guess the fixed costs are, you know, do some property managers charge you more a larger percentage of the management fee that's a cost that's going to factor in a why um the property management company has to have some buying power hopefully they buy so many carpets and so much paint that they get significant discounts on the product that they purchase and they pass that right along to you as the owner uh that would be a great benefit you know if you're uh paying you know call it ten dollars a yard for carpet installed, 
you know, and the property management company can get it done for eight or nine, that's pretty significant over all your CapEx. Mm-hmm. Um, so all those are little variables that you need to kind of ask what kind of benefit you get um, as the owner. And and some of them are the opposite. They're, they're very expensive. Some of them pay for very expensive software mm-hmm. um, for the property manager and they pass that right along to you as the owner. <laughs> and you're like, gosh, this is expensive every month, you know? And then you start asking about this fee and that fee. And there's like an accounting fee on top of the property management fee. And, you know, they charge you a fee for, you know, processing your own payroll. And you're like, why am I paying you to process my payroll? And that part of the services and like, oh, no, that's an extra, you know, so, you know, gosh, darn, you just got to dive into it, to be honest with you. Yeah, it's it's that's a a good question. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's really complicated. Call me, (laughs) call me and we'll talk offline. (laughs) Yeah, that's good. I used to be a property management company, right? I own yeah, yeah. 1500 and I know there's areas that the management company wants to make money on. Correct, correct. And it doesn't I mean, always benefit the owner. You know, it benefits the management company. Yes, yes. But I mean, we have to understand property management is also a lot of work, right? And they are the backbone of your operation, right? So yeah. choosing the right property management and, you know, you know, you know how the profit centers and all that is, 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 yeah. is how so, everybody yeah. managed. So. Yeah, James, if you step back and you realize sometimes it's worth paying those little fees to these mm-hmm. property management companies if they're really good at what they do. Because if you step back, if they're really good at what they do, they're going to make you millions on your asset. Correct. If they're not very good at what they do, uh, they're going to lose you millions on your asset. And right. here's the key. Sometimes they just make excuses on why they're poor performers. And um, I, I struggled with a very large management company at 30,000 units. I owned a 650-unit apartment complex up in Dallas. Mm-hmm. And my occupancy was going down and down and down. And the bad debt was going up and up and up. And I'm like, what in the world is going on here? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they said, well, the market, the submarket is getting worse. Correct. Like, and I scratched my head. I said, well, how could that be? Because our competitors are at 94 and you're at like 81. You know what I mean? Um, they're like, well, that's because they have just filled it up with junk people. And I'm like, well, I, I talked to the owner of that one. And they said their delinquencies is only like two and a half percent. And you guys are like seven. I mean, that doesn't add up either. So it's not, <laughs> you know, what's really going on. And, and they were a mess. They were going through changes up above. And the, they had fired two regionals that, or excuse me, two regionals that quit because of the leadership and the property manager had quit because she didn't like the management company. And my 650 unit was struggling financially now after it had just had its best year. Her name was Letty. She was the property manager for us for a year, year and a half. When Letty left, everything unraveled. Mm. And, and I ended up having to terminate that management contract. And I gave it to a different management contract, uh, to a different management company. Um, and they were very successful. And they turned it all around. And I was selling that that complex about a year and a half after the new property management uh, took over. And guess what? They outperformed all of us. And it was the same submarket. It was the same community. So all the excuses the previous management company gave me was just a bunch of BS. Yeah. It takes it takes a lot of leadership to really fire property management because, you know, as an asset manager who just knows asset management, you, you are, your hands are tight. 
right? You can listen to one excuses this month and next month they're going to give us the same excuses. But yeah. at what point do you make that call saying that, okay, these guys are not good, right? So it's very hard yeah. for you to make that call if you do not know the details on and how to read the financials. Like you say, you know the owner on the other on the comms, right? But yeah, not everybody knows the owners, right? So how do yeah. they find out, right? They could be very well true that yeah. they're bad people, right? So yeah. can you have some tips on how to identify bad property management. <laughs> and at one point, should be fine. I know, I know a couple of them by name. <laughs> no, we don't need names. <laughs> yeah, I can't say it on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> call me. Um, uh, how do you identify them? Here's one indicator. There's a lot of turnover from key people. You know, if the bookkeepers are quitting and the regional managers are quitting and the property managers are quitting, um, if you know, if you can't have access to interview all those people and talk to them about why they're quitting, uh, you're losing out on an opportunity. But that will tell you that's an indicator. By nature, I think we turn over about 30% of the site people a year, you know, one of the indicators and uh, that I chart. So if you're up to 40, 50% of your site people um, move, you know, including your maintenance guys and your leasing agent, but if you're up uh, above 30%, there's a problem you know, um, either with the leadership or how it functions, or they just can't get enough training. There's something going on because not, you know, people don't just walk away from their jobs, you know, and they're, you know, and, and the way to indicate a good one management company is if they've got, you know, long-term employees that, you know, stay with them long-term over and over and over again. Um, so, you know, there's some indicators there. Okay. Um, and your intuition. Let me just address that. If for some reason a property management company is telling you excuses over and over and over again, and in your mind it doesn't add up, but your gut's telling you something's not right here, uh, I would I would say trust your intuition because there's probably something not right there. Got it. Got it. Let's let's go back to the most, as you said, the most important person, the whole pipeline, right? Or for an owner asset manager, right? So you have leasing agent, you have property manager, you have regional, and you have the property management leadership, right? So you said, if I remember correctly, regional is the most important on how they communicate and take- The regional and the property manager, oh, those two. Together. Both two. Okay. Yeah, together, yeah. So how do you identify the qualities of a good regional? Yeah, you know, the, the good regionals, um, you can always tell if they're pretty effective because you can ask them a question about, you know, call it uh, turnover expenses or, you know, um, you know, we noticed this big expense for HVAC, you know, and that regional says, you know what, I noticed that too, because the manager had booked it up in the operating expenses and I reclassed it to CapEx. And if the regional knows what's going on, on how the property is spending their money and they're where, where they're booking it. She just knows it or he knows it right off the bat. They're on it and they are on it. And you should be very grateful that they're watching your asset and your financials uh, pretty effectively. Now, if you ask a regional manager, Hey, uh, what's going on? Why did our NOI go up? And she's like, I have no idea. Let me get back with you. And you're like, okay, get back with me. You know, let's talk. And she never, he never gets back with you. And you send them another email says, you know, what did you find out? I mean, our NOI took a dip 10 grand this month and it's been pretty consistent. What's going on? Uh, if you have to follow up more than one or two times, dude, you've got a problem. 
They're mm-hmm. not looking at your bottom line. They're not talking to their manager and they're certainly not watching your asset. Got it. Got it. Okay. That's very interesting. Yeah. So let's go to a bit more personal side. Um, is there any moment in your whole career when you, before, when you started in real estate up to now that you think you really, is there a proud moment that you always remember? You're going to remember that proud moment for your whole life. Oh, that's a good question. You, you should that? have given me some lead time on that. <laughs> you know, what moment should come um, in the thick of a time? Because yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. really proud that I did that, right? Give yeah. me anything. Um, you know, I think part of it is a feeling of satisfaction that I get. Um, you know, when we syndicate a deal, we bring investors together and we take that money that they've trusted us with and we apply it to the apartment complex and we... We do what we said we were going to do. We renovate the office and we raise the rents. And then, you know, down the road, you, you step back and you look at the community. And you're like, wow, this actually looks better than it did when we buy it. You know, and then it feels better. And our delinquency has gone down. It's almost like your baby. Right? It's like your kid, your little offspring. Like, I'm so proud of this community. Uh, and then you sell that and you give all the investors back their money. And they call you on the phone and you're like, Glenn, dude, I'm so happy you actually did what you said you were going to do and, and did better than we expected. That just, you know, to be honest with you, I get so much satisfaction out of that. And I like making other people money, you know, and when that happens, they don't mind sharing the profits with me and now I'm making money. Mm -hmm. So it's not always about the money, but uh, it's about, you know, doing what you said you were going to do and, and doing it well and kind of being the best in the industry. Um, not all deals have gone as planned. Not all deals have been successful. And those are, those are tough pills to swallow. But I think for the most part, my greatest in my career is seeing the magic that we work and executing the plan. I just, I love that. It's, um, and then there's one other, if you don't mind me sharing. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Okay. There's a gentleman that was a maintenance guy that would come and talk about if you spend this, you know, I think we need more rent. If you fix this over here and, you know, I mean, really, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even do anything on the one bedrooms because, you know, we have so many of them. We can't even rent them, you know, but we can make a lot more on that. I, I took that maintenance guy and, and I said, have you ever thought about being a property manager? And he's like, no way. There's no way. I, that's the last job I want. I'm like, but you think like a property manager. And this is just a deal here in Austin that I was managing. Uh, as a fee manager. And I, and I convinced him, I said, dude, you could do this. And he did, he got out of his comfort zone and we moved him from outside to inside. And he was the same way. He was so effective. I love the way he processed. And um, his name's Lewis. And Lewis was a very good manager. He had a wife and a child and he was later moonlighting um, uh, for a company for Best Buy. You know, he was working there in the evenings and on weekends and stuff to make ends meet for his family. And we were at lunch one time talking and I saw what he had done for the community, right? The the occupancy went up, it had stabilized and he was right. We were making more money on the two bedrooms. And I, and I told Lewis, I said, Lewis, why don't you quit? How much are you making at Best Buy a month? He's like, I get an extra eight or $900 a month by working kind of part-time on the weekends. And I said, if you were able to just devote more time to the community, do you think you can make it more money? He goes, I just can't afford to not. So I told Lewis, I said, let me raise your pay by $1,000 a month 
Mm. If you quit that job. And I said, then you could be a better husband. You could be a better father to your kid and you won't be so stressed. You don't have to work every single weekend because you're going to get burned out. You're going to get sick. And then you're eventually going to quit. And, you know, he's a grown man. He just started to cry right there at lunch. It was kind of uncomfortable. He's like, why would you do that for me? And I said, because I see in you great things, Lewis. And I said, you should be a better dad and a better father to your child. If you're gone all the time, you're going to look back and you're going to say it wasn't worth it. So the community had benefited so much from this guy. It could afford to give him a $12,000 a year raise. And it would have zero effect on that property's bottom line because he had increased the NOI. And um, he stood up. He, he was the tears in his eyes. And he's like, I'm going to go give notice. You know, I said, and I'm going to raise your pay this afternoon. And he gave me a big hug. And, and, and we've been friends ever since. And he's very successful. But um, that was a proud moment where I identified that it's not always just about the money. It's also about being a good dad, a good husband, and a and having less stress in your life. And sometimes we could take real estate and, and, and make dreams happen for people. And that, that was a good moment in my life. You know, yeah. that wasn't that long ago. It's very fulfilling, right? When you impact people's life, right? I mean, yeah. you can make money in many ways, right? That's um, right. I've, you make a few million dollars and then you forget about it and you give to investors and you forget about it and you go yeah. buy another one. But when you impact someone, it follows you throughout your life and you remember that yeah. that's a big impact. That's uh, you can't really put a money value. Yeah. Right? That's, yeah. that's important. I had, you know, rich investors uh, who, when I paid them back through a refi, you know, they were like happy on, oh, okay, I really needed this money and you gave it to me. And there was, it was just like a mind blowing thing to me because I didn't really th think that they really need that money. I mean, sometimes people just invest hundreds of thousands of dollars and we give them, you know, hundred thousand back to them. They were like, wow, it's like, I needed this money and you gave it to me. I'm so happy. Right. So yeah. Yeah. It's very fulfilling. That's what I feel. Fulfilling. Yeah. That's neat. Yeah. Awesome. So do you have any secret sauce for, for your success? Um, do the right thing. Be in the right place at the right time. A little bit of luck. I do a lot of praying. <laughs> That's <laughs> help from above. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, um, and uh, just do the right thing. You know, I mean, I've gone through business relationship changes with business partners because, um, you know, we're not always aligned with doing the right thing. And I say that if you're really going to be successful, just, you know, always do the right thing. And, um, and, and what comes around goes around. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think one thing that I want to share with the audience is uh, that I know about you and another buyer, which is part of our same masterminds when you had the yes. sales of that property, which had a, a chiller system and it was down like one or two weeks before closing. And yes, I think you had a choice whether you want to disclose it to the buyer or not. And you made the choice of disclosing it, which is, I think, is absolutely the right thing to do, right? Yeah. You should have to disclose that hundred over thousand well, dollar repair, yeah. right? Well, not only did I disclose it, James, I also bought the buyer a new chiller. Oh, absolutely. You know, he was already past his due diligence. He was closing on it. He couldn't come back and retrade me. I mean, his earnest money was more than a chiller. So um, <laughs> I could have just said, it is what it is. You know, I could have put a Band-Aid on it. But, you know, this is a small world we live in, you know, Correct. and 
And I've, you know, and I've had business partners that have said, you know, well, gosh, you don't have to tell them that kind of stuff. And inside my heart, I feel like I do. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah. So I bought the guy a new chiller and he heard about that and he picked up the phone and he called me directly. You know, a lot of times the buyers and the sellers don't always talk to each other because they've got brokers that represent them. And then they've got attorneys that, you know, work all the stuff out. But he called me on the phone. He's like, I just want to say thank you. And I said, you're welcome. And I said, you know, it's a small world. And I know how I would feel if the roles were reversed and I was buying an apartment complex and, and I got stuck with a pretty big bill and somebody had knowledge of it because that actually happened to me. I bought uh, Oats Creek up in Dallas, a 280 unit deal. And um, after our due diligence and even after, you know, we should have caught it, but we didn't. There was a couple of buildings that had uh, questionable foundation issues. and um, my engineers didn't catch any of my contractors. Later, I found out that the owner knew about it, the seller. And, um, and I'm like, well, dude, why didn't you tell me? I could have just budgeted for it and fixed it. Now I got to figure out how to scramble to pay for it because it's not on my rehab budget. He's like, oh, I just didn't feel like it was, you know, I didn't want to tell you because I don't want you to retrade me. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't have retraded you. I just wish you'd have told me because I could have raised a little extra money to fix it. So anyway, um, just what comes around goes around. Secret sauce, do the right thing. That's yeah, the do secret. the right thing. Absolutely. But you also have to analyze your numbers. You know, I, you know, with 30 years of experience, when I come across deals today, you know, I will jump in and I will verify rents. I'll verify, you know, rehab. I'll look at, you know, how we're going to finance it. And some sponsors like me or you, we don't do this, but some people do. And they just convince themselves that, it's still a good deal, even though the numbers don't say so, or like uh, my gut's telling me that it, you know, we're gonna make a ton of money. I don't know, man, the comps suggest that you're not, you know, and, you know, and like, well, the taxes aren't really going to go up that high. I'm like, actually, this is going up pretty high off the board. And so is the insurance. And, you know, so people convince themselves that, you know, not to listen to reality. Well, secret sauce. Listen to reality. Be honest with yourself. Listen. The numbers don't lie. Right? The numbers don't lie. Exactly. You might lie to yourself, but the numbers aren't going to lie to you. <laughs> yeah. you it's so time. hard nowadays, I think, for newbies, especially who want to get started, right? I mean, they've been looking for deals yeah. for many, many months, right? Sometimes years, yeah. right? And they feel so frustrated because, you know, the market is so good. Everybody's a champ in a bull market. Everybody's making money. Yeah. yeah. Like, I need to get jumping into buy something, right? And even though they find the numbers are not really strong, I mean, you have to make a lot of yeah. <laughs> aggressive assumption, right? Uh, and yeah. then they just go ahead and do it, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's very hard for them. I can understand that, but it is what it is, right? I mean, real estate yeah. is not forgiving in a downturn. Right. Yeah, that's very been, true. We have been in an upturn for past nine years and a lot of mistakes have been. <laughs> right. yeah. yeah. Well, here's a little golden nugget for current, our current environment, right? Mm -hmm. So interest rates are down. Um, I believe that we're kind of reaching the top. Everybody talks about that. Mm -hmm. Well, one way to mitigate your risk is when you buy a deal in today's market, and here's what I'm doing, is I actually raise extra money for my investors for a rainy day fund. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not applied to anything whatsoever. It's just going to sit in the checking account as an emergency. Well, you know, you kind of have to pay some preferred return sometimes or a return to the investors for all that extra money. But uh, I'm doing that in my own personal acquisitions just so that I don't ever have to go back and do a cash call to an investor. And I know, you know, I know there will thing, things will come up that I can't, uh, you know, foresee 
and the market's going to take a couple bumps. Well, I'm preparing for that now. So, Got it. Got it. So very yeah. very yeah. good uh, tips over there. What are the advice for newbies who want to be like you? Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, be better than me. Um, I think it's important for people that want to get in the industry to actually latch on and become friends with and, and, and partner with somebody that's done it before. That doesn't mean you have to form a company together and you don't have to be long-term, but at least do one deal with somebody who's done it over and over again. You're going to learn so much just by having a mentor friend on one transaction. And once you've been through a full cycle or something um, with somebody holding your hand, uh, and don't be afraid about giving up some of your money to that person or the profits, uh, you know, you will get more, much more out of the education and the experience. And then you can go do it on your own without those people after you've done it once or twice. Some people like to just jump in and say, I can do this. That's my advice. I would do that. Got it. Got it. It's, it's a very exciting um, and inspiring advice. Uh, let me go to the one last question before I let you go, Glenn. Uh, okay. Why do you do what you are doing on a daily basis? Oh, man. It doesn't feel like work, James. <laughs> I kind of work and I look at the deals and I'm, um, I just love it. I mean, it doesn't feel like work. And um, I could have been a hospital administrator. That felt like work. I didn't want to do that the rest of my life. For some reason, I'm just attracted to this and I get to pick and choose who I do business with. I get to pick and choose which brokers I like to do business with. I get to you know, put together a team of people that I like to do business with, you know, just, you know, people in the office, but partners that I do business with investors, um, lenders, I get to pick all that. Hmm. And uh, you can do business with whoever you want to do business with. And you can be kind of in control of your own destiny. And it's fun. That's why I do what I do, James. Awesome. Awesome. My question is, James, why do you do what you do? <laughs> you know? Is that really a question? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a real question. What, what, what uh, you, man? Actually, nobody have asked me that question when I asked that question, but that's really a really good question. I, I do what I do is because I'm trying to make a big impact in the world, right? So real estate is just a tool for me, right? Uh, so I'm trying to figure out, I mean, it, basically my reason would be how I impact I mean, I love impacting other people's life. Right? I mean, that's what you said, right? You made an impact to that employee's uh, life. And and we make, as a real estate uh, entrepreneurs, we make impact into many people's life, right? Uh, into the community's life, into our employee's life. And into, uh, I mean, we also give a lot of uh, donations out, right? And how do I impact, you know, orphans, kids, uh, you know, kids who are often in the third world country and we pay a lot of money for the education and all that. So impacting their life and... You know, uh, it gives you the fulfillment. I mean, that's 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 why I do. What do I do? I love it. I love it. You ask me hard questions. I got to ask you one at the very end. <laughs> I love it. You know, because you want to make a difference in the world. I think it's awesome. Yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, as I said, money is. You know, you can make money and you can forget about how much you made after a few years. But yeah, yeah. But impacting people's life when you really really see that you have touched someone's life in a big way that comes with you throughout. Uh, your until your yeah. until you die, right? So that's important, yeah. I guess. James, uh, you're a good man. You know, <laughs> Thank I, you. You're putting together some cool deals. You're writing a book, and you get you invite people like me to come on your show and and share our story. And sure, I, 
I just think you're a pretty cool guy, man. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, uh, why not you tell our audience uh, and listeners how to get hold of you, how to you know get in touch with oh, you? Oh yeah, yeah. So my phone number. I'll start with that. Feel free. <laughs> really going to give me a phone number? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Five one two nine three seven five nine six four. And I have an email address, Glenn with two N's at Obsidian Capital Co. dot com. And uh, how do you spell Obsidian? Uh, O-B-S-I-D-I-A-N. Okay. Capital, C-A-P-I-T-A-L-C-O dot com. So Obsidian Capital Co. Okay. And awesome. you can also go to the website and we're there too. So that's how. Awesome. Thank you very much, Glenn, for being in the show and sharing all your awesome tips. It is, we have so much of value, you know, in terms of property management, in terms of your personal thought process. And yeah. that's what I want to get out of the podcast because sometimes, uh, as I said, it's not only making money, right? It's also yeah, what's behind the person. That's that's yeah. why I do this podcast. So yeah, all so right, to make a difference in the world. Thanks, James. Exactly. Thank you very much. Okay. See you soon. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Bye. That's it for this episode. If you'd like to learn even more, check out James's free audio book. It's the audio version of his best-selling book on passive investing. You can get the audiobook completely free, along with other valuable resources, by visiting www.achieveinvestmentgroup.com forward slash free audiobook. Also, be sure to join our Facebook group too. To find it, just do a Facebook search for Multifamily Investors Group. Thanks for listening. Join us again for another episode next week. See you then.